trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And hello there and welcome to the show once again. I'm glad you could join our growing audience of wrong thinkers. If you're new to the concept of wrong think, don't be uh, scared. It can be a little bit intimidating. This does require stepping away from the herd, or at least uh, choosing a direction of your own rather than just kind of going with the flow of the herd. I can only promise you that in the end, it's worth it. You will be thinking more clearly and more independently about what's going on. By the way, that doesn't uh, mean necessarily you're going to agree with me or with any of the various uh, articles or commentators that are on my show. It simply means you're going to have some options other than the official narrative that uh, some insist we have to embrace, whether it squares with reality or not. If that seems subversive or if that seems antisocial to do so, I don't know what to say. All I know is I'm happier. I feel better about life when I'm doing my best to uh, hold to what is true and to understand what is true, and to, to not be manipulated or be, you know, a puppet in somebody else's hands. There's a lot of misinformation out there these days, and so this is, this is about fortifying yourself, propaganda-proofing yourself, if you will, against those who would uh, either outright deceive you or just simply mislead. Our show is brought to you by our great sponsors, including HSLAmmo.com, also Pure-Light.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. Links can be found in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. We're going to start today with uh, some discussion about uh, a viral video of police, (laughs) well, tasing, handcuffing, and arresting a 17-year-old in Maryland accused of vaping. Now, that sounds pretty routine, right? I mean, he probably had it coming, right? The kid was probably lipping off, wasn't doing what the officers told him. I mean, come on. 17-year-olds, we've all been there. And yes, once upon a time, I would have had this attitude. But I choose to see this as a learning opportunity, and this is the lesson that I think more people should at least consider. Whether you embrace this or not, again, this is up to you. But the lesson is there is no law so insignificant that the state won't use violence, and I mean up to and including lethal violence, in order to enforce it. I pointed this out in one of my columns here a few years ago on St. George News. And, you know, I, I always had critics that, that would follow me around and just didn't matter what, what I said. You know, if I said, well, the sky is especially blue today, they'd be like, uh, no, uh, it's light blue. <laughs> okay, well, all right, as long as I'm wrong and you're right, that's, that's cool. But when I suggested that even the tiniest laws are backed by official violence, ooh, that made them angry. And I I don't know, maybe it was because it made him uncomfortable. And I think we all get that way when we encounter um, ideas or even truths that we're just not ready to acknowledge or that would shake up our perception of the world as we think we understand it. And for most people, we've been raised to believe, well, now, come on, man, the police are a benevolent force in our community and they're just there to keep law and order and protect us from the bad guys and keep us safe. I think that's the thing I hear more than anything. It's just, these are here to keep us safe and we should appreciate the police for everything they do. 
Now, what I'm about to say in no way is suggesting that, oh, no, no, cops are all bad. There are a lot of good individuals out there who wear a badge and, uh, you know, go on patrol and, and do their jobs. But the way that they are used, the mission that they are given, well, let's just say that it has been shifting over time. And, and no matter how noble the mission we give them, we cannot pretend away that, uh, that they are not representative of organized violence. That's what they are. They're the tip of the spear for the state to inflict it or enforce its will on the people. And that really makes some people angry when you point that out, especially if you're pointing it out in the, the course of saying, look, here's the policy that's being uh, proposed. Are you really willing to kill someone in order to make that policy stick? Because reduced down to its, its barest essence, strip away all the fluffy euphemisms, strip away all the good intentions, the bottom line is if, if you yourself, you personally, would not be willing to kill a person in order to enforce that particular law, then maybe it shouldn't be a law in the first place. That's why we have to keep the state limited. That's why we have to be careful what we enact into law, because it's always backed up by force. Ever notice that word right in the middle of enforcement? Yes, it's force. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the 17-year-old arrested in Maryland. Billy Binion wrote this article for uh, Reason.com. The title is, Don't Be Surprised When Stupid Laws Are Maintained With Force. And he starts with a statement from an advocacy group that says, We are horrified and outraged by the incident of police violence in Ocean City, Maryland this weekend. There is absolutely no place for violence and abuse in enforcing tobacco laws. See, the group was uh, from an advocacy group that apparently uh, was drafted in response to the viral video of cops using force on teens accused of vaping. But uh, Billy Binion says, well, these expressions were commonplace, at least as the, the clips ripped their way through social media. But he says that press blurb that he quotes there was particularly rich because it came from the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids. In other words, an organization that has fought to put in place the very same sorts of laws that they now regret seeing enforced with violence. The press release continued, Our communities cannot be safe and healthy when the police often choose to enforce these laws with violence, often disproportionately against black and brown people. All right, so we get some virtue signaling points here as well. They're still missing the point, though. If it's serious enough that you want a law created, if you want it to stick then you are bidding men with guns to go out there and do violence, if necessary, to make sure that law is being obeyed. Now, Billy Binion says, look, certain crimes merit that treatment. Consider any number of offenses where the actions of an alleged perpetrator directly endanger or infringe on the rights of those around them. Okay, things like murder, rape, assault, arson, property crimes. These are what you would call mala and say laws. Or laws that, that punish those acts are, are called mala and say laws. Because on its face, it's an act that creates a victim. Now, most of the laws we have are mala prohibitive, meaning they are words on paper from someone in authority saying, you can't do this, or we'll punish you. 
Billy Binion says the core job of government as laid out in the Constitution is to protect the citizens from the offenses like murder, rape, assault, arson, property crimes, whenever possible. But he says the state's purview has grown to encompass much more charged with stamping out victimless offenses like drug use, prostitution, and some of the newest moral panics like vaping. Now, lawmakers may disagree with those personal choices, some of which might be deleterious to the health of the individual. But government must weigh the costs and benefits of armed state agents policing people's habits. See, vaping isn't worth the the militaristic approach. And he had previously written that there are plenty of additional costs that come with prohibition. Foremost is that it spurs violence. As people are resigned to black markets and prohibited from litigating anything in public, that allows organized crime to take flight. The community pays the price. But that hasn't stopped a bipartisan effort to dictate who is allowed to vape and how they're allowed to do it. Despite data that shows such rules funnel people toward cigarettes, which is actually a more dangerous product than vaping. Now, Billy Binion says the efficacy of any proposed ban is relevant. More important in the context of this conversation, though, is the collateral damage incurred by enforcement. Take the kids in Perth and Boy, New Jersey, who had their bicycles seized after they were confronted by officers for minor traffic infractions and for failing to register their bikes with the city. Yeah. Serving and protecting folks, one of the kids was arrested. These kind of interactions damage trust in the police and can even turn deadly. The Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids positions their work as protecting children and saving lives. Now, Billy Binion says, I have no doubt they believe that to be true. But when they use the state as their lever of choice to accomplish that end, they shouldn't be surprised when a law enforcement officer does what he or she is told and force the law. So the lesson here, I mean, this this doesn't really come down to, well, if you're a conservative or a Republican, you should see this clearly, and a Democrat, you should open your eyes. This cuts across all party lines, and this is one of the places, sadly, where um, my, my more uh, conservative brethren and sisters actually have a very curious blind spot because they do appreciate law and order. They have respect for institutions like law enforcement. But sometimes they, too, are guilty of advocating for laws that actually uh, get the state involved in situations where it really wasn't needed in the first place. And when the state comes to enforce whatever that law is, yes, they're going to send guys with guns and badges and organized violence to make sure that the state's will prevails. So this isn't a call to abolish the police. This is a call to uh, let's be very careful in how we ask them to carry out their mission. Save it for the stuff that matters might be another way of putting it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'd like to encourage you to stop by my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. A couple things you're going to find of interest there. Number one is resources for wrong thinkers. I'm not trying to make everybody think like I do, but I, I want to give you access, and I've, I've compiled a list of different news aggregators, different, uh, different aggregators and, and collectors of commentary that uh, have really helped me understand the world better because they approach things from something different than the traditional red versus blue and whatever is happening in Washington is the most important thing in our lives mentality. 
These are principle-driven commentaries, and it makes all the difference in the world. Again, it's the thebrianhideshow.com. You can check out resources for wrong thinkers if you'd like, subscribe to the podcast, maybe even consider becoming a patron or monthly supporter of it. I can tell you, and hopefully you would, you would recognize that speaking the truth these days isn't necessarily the easiest thing to do. I mean, we want to believe it is. But when someone says something that is is clearly grounded in reality, now even if even if it's not popular, but if if it's nonetheless the truth, I don't know. I'm thinking back to that song from the Disney musical, "The Happiest Millionaire." Millionaire, no shilly shallying, no dilly dallying. Let's have a drink on it. And it whole starts. It starts with the premise of when the truth is nobly spoken, it's respect you've got to pay. But I'm thinking back to about a year ago as we were watching cities all over the, the nation burn thanks to protests over the death of George Floyd. And I was surprised to find this story about a composer who uh, condemned arson a year ago. And since that time, this, uh, this young man, his name is Daniel Elder, a musician, a composer, lives in Nashville, Tennessee. He has become so radioactive, no one will hire him. Well, what could he have said that was so provocative? He condemned arson. Now, if you think, well, did he do it in a sensitive and inclusive way that didn't, you know, reflect badly on, you know, Black Lives Matters or Antifa? Uh, no, no, it's 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 not even that. He 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 said it as simply and as uh, as lacking edge as possible. He wasn't out there trying to score social media points for being an edge lord. But because he spoke a truth which the cancel culture mob could seize onto. He has been at the mercy of this mob, and, well, let's just say they're pretty merciless. Interestingly enough, Daniel Elder's musical career, the prize of, the, I'm sorry, the theme of his prize-winning work is truth through emotion. So if you were to look at a catalog of choral music that he's done, um, The Heart's Reflection is the name of his de- debut commercial album. This is what you would find, but he isn't composing much these days, according to this article. And even if he were, no one in the industry is willing to buy his work. His publisher has blackballed him. Local choral singers, or directors rather, refuse to program his music because they're scared that it's going to provoke a backlash. In fact, they won't even let him sing in the choir. Daniel Elder says, my artistic wellspring is capped. Now he says, I think it will come back, but things have remained in quite a rough place after all this happened. So what happened? Well, he made a short statement on Instagram that went viral during the George Floyd protests in the summer of 2020. Now, he's hardly the first person to suffer significant professional consequences after causing a social media firestorm. Virtually every day brings more examples of people saying slightly offensive things that stoke the fury of some mob. The problem is now so exhaustively covered in the media that cancel culture has become a top issue for many Republican voters even though conservatives also engage in cancellation as well. But as the article says, even among those cancel culture excesses, elders' supposed transgression stands out as a particularly absurd example of what cancel culture can do. Though he was tarred and feathered as a racist contrarian, the Instagram post that caused all the trouble was neither racist nor contrarian. In fact, an overwhelming majority of people would likely agree with the sentiment behind it, which was basically this. Arson is bad. Now, Elder also always considered himself a man of the center-left. 
He was not particularly political or outspoken, but supported liberal causes, including police reform and opposition to racism. He says the fact that he was on the same side as the progressive activists made this sort of a strange betrayal. George Floyd's death at the hands of Minneapolis police on May 25, 2020, caused widespread protests across the country. On May 30th, around 1,000 peaceful protesters marched down the streets of Nashville as part of a I Will Breathe rally, but not everyone on the streets was peaceful. A group of activists joined the protest as it was drawing to a close. They started smashing windows and spraying graffiti on the sides of buildings. They threw rocks at police cars. Eventually, someone set the city's historic courthouse on fire. The Nashville Tennessean noted the courthouse windows were smashed, Its walls were spray-painted with graffiti, and fires were started inside the building, damaging a portion of the mayor's office. A plaque commemorating the civil rights movement in Nashville was destroyed. And the destruction spooked Elder, who lived nearby and was thus under a citywide curfew. He also found himself increasingly unnerved by the number of emotional social media posts coming across his feeds that seemed to justify radicalism and groupthink. Elder said, I saw a mob mentality around my own friends, and I was worried that that was what was happening on the outside, too. So, dismayed, disenchanted, unable to sleep, he decided to delete his Instagram account. But he penned one last farewell message, which was cross-posted to his Twitter feed and his professional Facebook page. This is what it said, quote, Enjoy burning it all down, you well-intentioned blind people. I'm done. Now, that post was unambiguous. His criticism was for the activists who set the courthouse on fire. But notice, he didn't malign their cause or their ethnicity. In fact, the perpetrator was white, who burned the courthouse. He didn't attack the Black Lives Matter movement or criminal justice reform. In fact, he implied that the militants had good motives, right, well-intentioned, but were oblivious or blind when it came to the self-defeating nature of their tactics. So these sentiments aren't racist. In fact, they're correct. Social science research and voter surveys show that violent and destructive protests tend to backfire, eroding support for the cause in question. While a small number of far-left agitators support these tactics, the overwhelming majority of people oppose looting, riots, and arson. And by the way, this is especially true of people who live in communities of color. Now, one might not have expected Elder's mild declaration to attract much attention, but when he woke up the next morning, ho, 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 critics were spamming his Facebook and YouTube pages with comments accusing him of being a racist and a white supremacist piece of garbage. And he started to receive nasty emails as well. Some were anonymously authored, expletive-laden, and ugly from start to finish. Others confessed a previous appreciation for his music but said, I will never listen to you again. One former fan said, I've relatively recently become aware of your work and have enjoyed your compositions for their sensitivity and artistry. However, after learning of your insensitive comments on social media, however perceived as misunderstood, I've decided to unsubscribe from your YouTube channel and will no longer recommend your compositions to colleagues. Another person wrote, It's really a shame, such beautiful music, and I feel like I can't do any of it now. Yet another said, I'm a choir director and department head for the music department for a private school in Ohio. I want to inform you that your rhetoric surrounding the recent protest is unacceptable, and my school will not be programming your music unless and until a public apology is issued. Now, many of former appreciators of Elder's music expressed regret that it had come to this. One recommended he read Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility. Another expressed hope that you find a way to lose that hate in your heart. Now, again... His so-called hateful rhetoric was a two-sentence objection to the fire at the courthouse. 
He wasn't even condemning the broader movement, but the messages didn't cease. Do some research and maybe some inner reflection. Maybe figure out where your racist tendencies are coming from, wrote another clinic. You are canceled. Black Lives Matter. Well, within 24 hours, the controversy had garnered the attention of Gia Publications. Now, in the world of choral music, Gia is not merely a publisher. It is the major publisher of religious content, thanks to its association with the post-Vatican II Roman Catholic Church. So GIA was Elder's publisher, an important source of his income. On the morning of June 1st, GIA President Alec Harris and media editor Susan Labar contacted him about posting an apology. Now, we're going to come back to this in just a few moments. We've got a break that we're up against. They wrote the apology. All he had to do was post it. But wait till you hear what that apology sounded like and tell me, would you sign your name to it? I mean, he wasn't opposed to apologizing for any actual offense, but you got to hear this. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Sharing with you an article from Reason.com, Daniel Elder, the cancel culture uh, choral composer, who found himself canceled for a very short two-sentence objection to uh, people trying to burn down the historic courthouse in Nashville. And uh, because uh, he worked with GIA Publications, or GIA, I don't, know if, I don't know if they go by GIA, but nonetheless, the president of GIA and its media editor contacted him about posting an apology. This was June 1st of last year. Now, the apology had been written by GIA, all Elder had to do was post it. The remarks prepared on his behalf are as follows, and they're worth reading in full. Quote, Over the weekend, I made a post on my social media accounts that was insensitive and wrongly worded. I deeply apologize for the anger, offense, and harm that this post caused. While this offense was not intended, it is what was created. For this, I am truly sorry. There is no justification that I can offer for my post, so rather than try to offer an excuse for what was done, I offer a promise for what to do, for what I will do going forward. I commit to making amends and to dialogue. I commit to educating, to continue educating myself about privilege and bias. I commit to continue seeking an understanding of the experience of others, especially the black community. I know that working for justice requires that we each first act justly. My work begins now. Now, the media editor, Susan Labar, also added that while we know that you write music that promotes social justice, this was not clear to the people who read the Instagram post. And Labar said, we're feeling time pressure on this as some people are calling for boycotts. It's all very heavy. But Elder was not inclined to make such a groveling apology and was dismayed to see his colleagues siding with his critics. So he says, I chose to be that guy who didn't issue the apology. Things went from there, and it wasn't good. Within hours, GIA issued a denunciation of Elder. Quote, The views expressed in composer Daniel Elder's incendiary social media post on Sunday evening do not reflect the values of GIA or our employees. It said, GIA opposes racism in all its forms and is committed to do what Michelle Obama called the honest, uncomfortable work of rooting it out. End quote. Now, note, this PR statement endorses the view that Elder had made an incendiary statement. 
Neither Harris nor Labar responded to a request for clarification as to which aspect of Elder's anti-arson agenda they, they oppose. By the way, they also announced that the company would no longer publish Elder. The statement concluded, We are grateful to those who brought this to our attention and to all who continue to hold individuals and organizations to account. Now, GIA made this announcement on Facebook. Virtually all the comments were supportive, although one person asked why the company had not scrubbed all references to Elder on its website. What's the plan, asked this individual. Keep supporting a bigot? Now, for Elder, the consequences were far-reaching. The coronavirus pandemic had already upended his business in the era of COVID-19. Few activities had become as verboten as choir singing. Without the support of a publisher and a professional network, Elder's work was impossible. Moreover, local chorale directors refused to do business with him because of the controversy. They're afraid to associate with him or to be seen as defending him in any way. It's a bad look for them, says Elder. It's really quite extreme, the effect this has had. The toll on Elder's mental well-being has been equally catastrophic. Losing countless friends, colleagues, and fans is no small matter for an artist. He has seen a therapist and a psychiatrist and says he needed to be talked off the ledge several times. Needless to say, he has struggled to compose new music since everything fell apart. Now, the article here says, Over the past year, the saliency of the term cancel culture has risen dramatically. Partisans have appropriated the term every time a political figure comes under attack, his or her allies whine about cancellation. By the way, this is true for both major parties. Republicans complain that legitimate criticisms of former President Donald Trump and QAnon-curious Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene are attempted cancellations. New York's embattled Democratic Governor Andrew Cuomo has said the same thing about his own situation. None of these people were fit for office. And wanting them to face political consequences is democratic accountability, not cancel culture. This partisan corruption of the term is a shame because the phenomenon is real. And what's happened to Elder has happened to countless others. And as with so many of those others, Elder's story doesn't have a happy ending. He survived his ordeal only in the most literal sense, but his career is in shambles and recovering will be extremely difficult. Social media has a long memory. Nevertheless, the experience has positively impacted Elder in one way. He told the writer of this piece, it made him less ideologically narrow-minded. He says, because I was exiled, I started listening to voices on the right and the center, especially these classical, these classical liberals who've been exiled from the leftist movement. He says, the strange silver lining is this shook me out of my prejudices a bit. This is from Robbie Suave, by the way, who's the senior editor at Reason who wrote this article. I'm pretty sure there's a lesson in there for all of us. And it's it's tough. I mean, there there are times when I look at what I do, and I, I you know I don't consider myself a particularly uh, dangerous threat, you know, to to the cancel culture. Um, nobody has considered me dangerous enough to try to cancel me. But I actually find myself feeling very grateful that uh, about a year ago, I had to make a decision and had to take a step out to to really be on my own and be a truly independent contractor meaning I was not beholden to any one particular employer. And those of you who've done this, you understand. uh, The uncertainty, it's real. There's a lot of discomfort that's involved there because, you know, on the one hand, you know, to have a predictable, comfortable paycheck, it's great. You know, you know you're taken care of. When you start your own business, when you stand on your own, that, uh, that uncertainty is a very real thing. 
But if there is anything I can look at and say, man, I, I feel so blessed for the uncertainty, it's the fact that if someone were to uh, decide for whatever reason, you know, Brian, you are too dangerous, and tell people, he ought to be fired. My response would be, good luck. Who are, who's going to fire me? You, you know who I work for? I work for myself. My boss may be a jerk, but he's not going to fire me. So there. <laughs> and I, I hope that doesn't sound like I'm just gloating and saying, yeah, everybody should do that. You, you probably would be wise to, to figure out how you can build some degree of self-reliance in terms of like alternate streams of income, hobbies that you could monetize or skills that you could put to work on the side if you had to. And that's just if, if you're a person who's committed to truth. Because there are plenty of people who are just lying in wait, just dying for something to be offended over so that they can flex and try to get you canceled. My advice is take it as a uh, take it as a compliment when somebody thinks you're you're having enough impact that they have to cancel you. But at the same time, I don't like to see it happen to anybody, even people who you know are on the left and and uh, have, have published some really unfortunate things that came back to bite them. It doesn't make me happy to see mobs forming and you know c- conducting what I guess would be the modern day equivalent of stoning other people. We do love our public stonings, as Joseph Sobran once pointed out. And the media loves to help encourage the crowd on. I think we can do better. But that's going to start more on an individual level, and it's going to depend on how you and I treat each other. By the way, what does our current uh, woke culture have in common with the civil rights movement? Because often they will hide behind the skirts of the civil rights movement. I've got an article here from Paul Gottfried. Pick this up off of intellectualtakeout.org. The Wrong Turn of Civil Rights. This is a pretty good piece, and he goes through and shows how the civil rights movement's often placed on a pedestal today with an almost religious fervor, right? You hear people talk about the Christ-like figure of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and anyway, it's interesting to see that somewhere along the way, the civil rights movement took a very interesting turn. And this doesn't mean that there aren't people out there who are legitimately, you know, looking out for the civil rights of their fellow human beings, It's just that somewhere along the way, someone found that, hey, we can weaponize this. We can turn this woke culture in particular, um, distorts the earlier civil rights movement. So I'll have a link to this article in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Interestingly enough, Paul Gottfried says the, uh, the, the the Black Lives Matter movement, I'm sorry, woke culture. He was talking about Black Lives Matter in an earlier paragraph. He says, Woke culture represents not just a glaring declaration of the earlier civil rights movement, but an unhappy culmination. And, and that's the, the movement under groups like the, the woke mob has not only increased racial animus, but it's largely been a diversion from a more serious path to collective self-improvement where you'd find true heroes like Booker T. Washington advocating at, at, the, last, at the beginning of the last century as opposed to just ranting against white people and justifying black violence. So while we can uh, lavish praise on the old civil rights movement, he says, and its norms, he says it's also proper to pay attention to the senior side, the places it's been taken where it really wasn't intended to go, at least by those who were its earliest practitioners. Maybe that's a bad thing to some people to make that kind of a distinction. 
But I think if you want to stay rooted in reality, you've got to be capable of making those sorts of distinctions. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So why do I do what I do? Why do I share these articles with you? What am I trying to accomplish here? What am I trying to persuade you? to do or to think more than anything i'm trying to persuade you to think for yourself and to question the narrative always question the narrative the one that says hey everybody is motivated by racial animus and everything is oppression everything that came before us is wrong and stupid and superstitious i want people to question that narrative i want them to stand for themselves and and be able to say I will be responsible for my own worldview rather than waiting for someone to spoon feed it to you. Okay, now here's what you think about this. Go ahead, take a spoonful. And now here's some more. I think this is especially important in light of what we have seen in the last year and a half. And by the way, over the last year and a half, particularly because of COVID and because of the lockdowns, it has become much easier to identify consistent voices of rationality. Jeff Tucker is is one of those people. Jeff, I believe, is, uh, I forget his official title. I think he is, he's the executive director of the American Institute for Economic Research. But this guy, especially on uh, the, the chaos of, of COVID and the lockdowns, has been correct often enough. If anybody's earned the right to say, I told you so, Jeffrey Tucker's that guy. But he's also a gentleman. And so he, he doesn't sit there and thump his chest, as, as others might be tempted to do. But he does take the time to sit down and write some of his observations. And in fact, I want to share with you a few excerpts of his recounting of what he learned during the 2020 fight over lockdowns. This is pretty powerful stuff. He says, last year presented the shock of our lives, the near end of anything we call human liberty in the U.S., except for one lonely state of 50, all in the name of virus control. And Jeffrey Tucker says, I was party to a strategy that successfully helped fight the lockdowns, and it taught me some valuable lessons about the role of ideas in realizing change. Now, he says, I hoped that the fires of liberty burning in the hearts of the American public would have been strong enough to stop this kind of tyranny from being visited upon us. He says, I would have predicted massive pushback, but it it didn't happen for a good part of the year. People were mired in fear and confusion. It felt like wartime with a population traumatized by shock and awe. Even so, he says, the cause of liberty has generally prevailed over the lockdowns, even though tremendous confusion and impositions remain. So that demonstrates that ideas do matter and can beat back the worst forms of malice, provided they're advanced with intelligence, strategic experience, and unrelenting moral courage. Think about that. And, and look, I'm not trying to make anybody feel like you're being singled out or picked on or anything, but is your worldview personified by intelligence? Is it personified by strategic experience? Do you have to use unrelenting moral courage to find the truth and speak the truth? I suspect that you're probably hitting on most of those notes, though you would not be listening to this show otherwise, or at least you wouldn't even give this show a chance. 
So you may be out of step with much of the mainstream, but if you're in step with your conscience and if you're in step with the truth, I, I don't think the rest of that matters that much. Jeffrey Tucker says, All my reading in college convinced me freedom is the most sloganized but least appreciated force for good in the history of humanity. It's how the human imagination is unleashed to create progress, a good life, peace, and general prosperity. He says, We owe the best of civilization around us not to plans and controls, but to the seemingly risky chaos of leaving people alone to solve their problems, something most intellectuals and states are loath to do. Murray Rothbard, along with his predecessors in liberal thought for centuries, taught Jeffrey Tucker that this struggle between liberty and power is the essential, how do you even say this word, desideratum of the historical narrative, not only in history, but also in the current moment. So continuing and winning this fight is the determinative factor in whether and to what extent we can create the conditions for continued progress or plunge further into the controlled morass in which the whole world found itself in 2020. I don't think he's exaggerating when he says our times are truly at a turning point. Now, just a reminder, as, as much as things have improved, he says most of the world today still struggles with remnants of lockdowns. Americans can only travel to seven countries in the world without restrictions, tracking, vaccination checks, and quarantines, none of which existed 18 months ago. The emergency visited upon us in the middle of March 2020 is still with us today, and we have a moral imperative to continue to fight and defeat this overreaching hand of tyrannical power. And so he lists out some of the lessons that will help us do this. And I'm just going to walk through a couple of these. First of all, he says, liberty is far more fragile than we knew. In 2020, liberty was taken away in what seemed like an instant. This is a good excuse, they said, one that had never been tried before in living memory. And the reason came out of the blue, public health and the sudden assertion that the rights of people, some people, not to be exposed to germs, would negate your liberty. He goes into some great detail here. I'm just touching on it, but uh, basically liberty took an unprecedented blow in the land of the free. Those of us, he says, who worked for decades to inspire a deep and abiding public commitment to the cause of freedom were left feeling as if our efforts were in vain. Just when the resistance to despotism needed a social force to counter it, it became meek at best and isolated. Number two lesson, he says, is the sources of resistance to tyranny come from unexpected places. So what were the places that didn't lock down? Well, it wasn't the tax havens. It wasn't birthplaces of liberty like Spain, Italy, or the U.K. It wasn't among those highly educated and credentialed populations of Massachusetts or Melbourne. Internationally, it was Tanzania, Sweden. Japan, Taiwan, Nicaragua, and Belarus. Even Russia opened up sooner than the U.S. with much fewer stringencies. Now he says, if I'd have told you in 2019 to move to Nicaragua right away to preserve your freedom, you would have thought me crazy. But that's precisely where we found ourselves, he says, living on a big globe with just a handful of implausible outposts of resistance no one could have identified in advance. And here in the U.S., there was just one state that fully resisted apart from closing schools for two weeks. That was South Dakota. And that was due to the courage of Governor Christy Noem, who made her decision to stay open based on an intuition that freedom is better than all forms of government planning. Despite media denunciation, her decision was politically popular in this state that prides itself on the frontier spirit of independence and skepticism towards power. He also learned, this is lesson number three, how resistance is achieved mainly from the intellectual sphere, pushed with good timing in a venue with genuine reach. Now, when he says intellectual sphere, he's not talking about universities and think tanks. 
He means pertaining to the ideas that people hold about themselves and their public lives. They're affected by myriad influences from many branches of thought, religion, economics, public health, memory, deep cultural assumptions, and so on. It's the ideas that people hold that drive the decision to resist or to comply. So the time to encourage and mold the ideas that people hold are when people are asking the right questions. It's not some abstract education that fixes the world. It's compelling ideas spoken with conviction at the right time. And the time for intellectuals to speak out was when the lockdowns happened, not a year later when it was safe to do so. He also learned how ideas travel and realizes their results cannot be gamed. And if you look at a particular incidents of history and ask the foundational question, how did the Protestant Revolution happen? From where did capitalism come and why did it land and thrive where it did? How did the Bolsheviks rise to power? How did the prohibitionists come to prevail? What were the means by which marijuana went from illegal narcotic to fully legal weed in so many towns? And he says they're, they're fascinating questions with no consistent or certain answers. And the reason for this pertains to the unique nature of ideas. Ideas are malleable, inf- infinitely reproducible, invisible, and they travel an unpredictable trajectory. They're not like widgets or services with supply chains or clear structures of production. And I like this. There are no limits to the market for a good idea. There's also no formula that assures it'll travel a certain way and land in a particular place. Lesson number five, the motivation to confront evil stems from moral conviction primarily and relies on a relentless focus with strategic considerations. Now, he says that moral conviction doesn't have to be set against creativity, strategic adaptability, and clever marketing. These are all crucial for good strategy, but he says conviction is the indispensable element. So if you have conviction, my friend, you're, you're well-armed. Now you just got to be well-informed and you know capable of carrying that message forward. That means finding the courage. In conclusion, he says 2020 was when liberty took a huge blow, the likes of which we haven't seen for many generations. But it was not finally a mortal blow. And the means by which we crawled out of the pit deserve close scrutiny. The cause of human rights, he says, is nowhere near being safe, but the ground has been prepared. In all places where lockdowns have faltered and political and intellectual change have arisen in their stead, we've rarely seen one word rise to the top, or we've consistently seen one word rise to the top of the public rhetoric, and that's freedom. A simple word, much used but rarely understood in all of its fullness. Let's continue to carry that message forward, each in our own unique way. This is The Brian Hyde Show.